Hello everyone, my name is JB with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky, nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is Monday, August 14th, 2023. Hard to believe August is half over and the summer is almost over. Folks are already starting to go back to school. I know we sent one of our daughters back to school uh, this weekend, and people are talking about uh, starting uh, school at at high school, and uh, my granddaughter started uh, preschool. So yeah, amazing. Summer flew by. Uh, For us, it went by especially fast because we spent the first six weeks of it dealing with all of the flooding uh, around our property. But uh, praise God, that's behind us now. Looking forward to the fall. Boy, we have a great schedule uh, this fall of speaking engagements. Take a time to uh, check out our events tab at notbyworks.org. And I want to mention uh, one of the uh, conferences that just got added. I am so honored and excited to be uh, speaking uh, at Tom Hughes's upcoming conference in Rockwall, Texas. And that is going to be, uh, let's see, August 25th and 26th. Uh, I'm just thrilled to death that he thought to ask me. Uh, Bill Koenig uh, had been uh, scheduled to be one of the speakers, and I guess something came up, so he uh, was a last-minute uh, change, and uh, Tom asked me if I'd fill in. So what an honor if you're in uh, the Texas uh, Rockwall DFW area. I'm not sure if there's still tickets left, but you can definitely purchase a ticket for the live stream, and you can find out all about it at notbyworks.org. We've got a banner on the highlight carousel, uh, and of course, you can click on the events tab as well, and it, it, it will link you up to that conference. But again, that's uh, Friday and Saturday, August 25th and uh, 26th, just coming up right around the corner. I'll be joined uh, by Tom Hughes himself, John Haller, uh, Bill Federer, uh, Olivia Melnick, Alex Newman, Dr. Andy Woods. I mean, these are just some guys that I don't know how in the world I got included in the mix, but praise God, can't wait to uh, to talk with them. I've, I've done lots with Andy, as you know. He's a, a dear friend, and we've worked together many times over the last 20 years. Uh, I had the chance to uh, meet with Alex Newman one time, uh, and we've exchanged a few emails. Of course, I've been on Tom's show, uh, but uh, and I've met these other guys at conferences where we've both been speaking. But wow, what a great conference. It's called Until He Comes Prophecy Conference. Again, August 25th and 26th. I encourage you to purchase a live stream ticket from uh, Hope for Our Times. That's Tom Hughes's group. And um, if you're in the area and you come to the conference, uh, come by our resource table and, and say hello. Wendy will be with me. Uh, Brooke's going to stay back and uh, at the office and kind of man the, the, the home front. And uh, my wife, Wendy, is going to uh, go with me and we'll both be at the booth uh, for that. So just wanted to mention that uh, upcoming conference, but lots more on the calendar uh, for this fall, including uh, Prophecy Watchers, a con- another conference down in Texas. Uh, we've got the Pre-Trib Conference. I've got one upcoming in September in Fort Collins, Colorado with uh, Bill Salas and uh, Dr. Randall Price. Uh, so check out our events page. Uh, but uh, today we're going to uh, do another episode of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. This will be episode six. And uh, before I get to that, just a couple of quick announcements uh, about the week ahead. It is Monday, as I said, and that means we're looking ahead to another great week of podcasts and interviews. Uh, Tomorrow morning, I'm going to be airing part one of a four-part series I did on Dr. Sherry Tenpenny's uh, program uh, on the spirit of the Antichrist. These were videos that aired in the month of July 
and uh, we're just going to post the audio version of that and encourage you to, to go to drtenpenny.com and, and uh, subscribe to her uh, channel there, and you can purchase the video versions. But uh, just some great information there. So I'm going to be uh, re-airing just the audio version of that tomorrow morning. Then, of course, tomorrow night is Prophecy Night. And uh, it'll be one of our final three Prophecy Nights uh, for the summer. And then we're going to take a break uh, for the fall while I'm traveling and, and entering the busy travel season. Uh, so on these final three Tuesday nights, we're going to be talking about the distinction between the rapture and the second coming. It's a question that comes up often. In fact, I think it might even be in my stack of questions for today's uh, podcast. But uh, you know, be, be sure and join us Tuesday nights by live stream at 6 o'clock Mountain. Or if you're in the Denver area, come on out to... Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Wednesday is World Events Update with Randy. I can't wait to talk to him uh, again. And a lot's going on in the financial sector. And over the weekend, he was sending me some information about uh, just some world events over in uh, the Russia area. So looking forward to talking with him. On Thursday, Lucas Doremus is back with us for part three of our uh, study of Jesus' enigmatic parables of the kingdom. And then on Friday, we will air part two of our uh, video series with Dr. Tenpenny. Again, it will be audio only. We encourage you to go to drtenpenny.com uh, to get the video uh, versions of that. Uh, and certainly the videos are worth it because you can see her, you can see me, you can see us dialoguing, and most importantly, you can see all of the slides that I use as I'm making the, the presentation in that interview. So, And then, of course, Saturday we'll have one more of our preparedness podcasts uh, with Randy. Looking forward to that as well. So let's dive in. Uh, I try to, to answer these questions in the order that we get them. That way you're not waiting as long. It seems unfair to me to answer a question that come, came in, say, yesterday when someone sent one in a week ago and, and I still haven't gotten to it. Uh, it's hard, though, I have to tell you, because some of the questions that come in are really uh, ones that really uh, resonate with me, and I want to jump right to those questions. But just so you know, I am trying to do them in the order in which uh, they're received. And as always, uh, you can email us your questions uh, at notbyworks.org. Just click on the Contact Us page. Uh, and Or I think there's a banner as well where you can click it and it'll open up your email browser. Uh, but uh, as always, keep the questions short if you can. Most of you do. And I, uh, I appreciate that. So here we go. I uh, hope some of these questions will be beneficial to you. Again, in no particular order other than the order in which we received them, but no topical order. The first question uh, is a, just a simple one about EMPs, and they commented that uh, Randy and I have talked about uh, you know preparations for EMPs, and they wanted to know is there a book, a list of books that Randy and I recommend uh, for preparedness? And the answer is yes. In fact, if you download our NBW uh, Ministries Preparedness Guide, which is free at notbyworks.org, uh, click on the Resources tab. I think it's the Resources tab. Yeah, on the left hand side of the homepage, and you'll see it right there. You click NBW Preparedness Guide, and it will automatically download a PDF of it. So we do have uh, lots of books that are recommended there, but I want to give this caveat. Uh, we need to update it because uh, over the course of doing these podcasts with Randy and my own study, I've come across several others that are excellent uh, resources. And so I apologize. We have not had the time to go in and, and add additional resources to that list, but that'll get you started uh, at least. The next question is also a question from someone who listens to the World Events Update with uh, me and uh, with Randy, and they're asking, uh, you know, what types of EMP protect protection products would you recommend that I purchase? They talk about how they live in a, 
uh, an apartment complex. They have some basic food prep and things like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, water filtration and so forth, but uh, EMPs in particular. Well, Randy's really the expert on that, and he has talked about it a lot on our uh, weekly conversations, and especially in our one that we did on Saturday several weeks ago, the very first uh, preparedness uh, podcast that we did on how to prepare for an EMP. Uh, but the short answer is there are Faraday bags and other uh, boxes and uh, containers that you can use of varying sizes to protect electronic devices uh, from uh, some type of uh, EMP weapon. Uh, my take on it is, uh, to be honest with you, I, I think that's one of the less likely scenarios that would affect me personally. In other words, I do think they will use EMPs. And, and I've said this on air and, and Randy and I have talked about it. Um, he's uh, you know a little bit more uh, bullish on the EMPs than I am. Uh, and he might be right. We don't really know. It's certainly a weapon in their arsenal. But my guess is if they use them, it's going to be localized in certain areas. I just don't see a nationwide EMP because remember part of the Luciferian goal in destroying America is to take it over. They want to use it and all of its resources as part of their new world order agenda. And if they had to rebuild all the infrastructure after destroying all of the circuitry, uh, that seems like it would be uh, difficult. Not saying it couldn't happen. It might. Uh, I wouldn't put anything past them. Uh, but uh, you know, I feel like most likely it's it's going to be something that uh, you know is more regional. Uh, does that mean it could happen where you are? Yeah, it still could be. You could be in the target zone. Um, but in terms of weighing all of the things that, that are in terms of their likelihood and what it would require to really insulate ourselves against them, EMP is not uh, you know near the top of my list. I, I'm more worried about food, water, protection, those types of things. Um, I would just encourage this uh, you know listener to just do a little bit of research on the web on how to uh, uh, to make or purchase uh, Faraday uh, bags, and uh, I appreciate the encouragement too. That uh, person emailed with some good encouraging uh, words. Uh, here's a, a simple question: What language was spoken in the Garden of Eden? Great question, and it's something that uh, Bible scholars and theologians have actually contemplated. The short answer is we don't know. Uh, there are really two schools of thought, uh, given the fact that the Book of Genesis was written in Hebrew, uh, and that's the, the language of God's people, and even the names Adam and Eve, of course, are Hebrew in origin. Many people assume it was Hebrew, but remember, uh, the book of Genesis didn't come about till 1446 BC. Uh, so the you know Earth was already 2400ish you know years old by that time. Let's see, did I do the math right? 34. For, yeah, and so you know, they, they and when Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in the garden, uh, that was well before the the written word of God. And so by then, you already had Adam being called out. You had Jacob and the twelve sons and the nation of Israel. And so, but we do know what we can say with certainty is that up until the Tower of Babel, there was only one language, and that was what is often referred to as the Adamic language because that's what Adam spoke. And then, you know, whatever it was. And then after the Tower of Babel, that's when God spread out uh, the nations and we have different languages on earth. So great question. Um, all right, this is a question. Uh, some of these are going to be short answers. Some of these are going to be a little bit uh, longer um, just because of the nature of the question. And in some cases, because uh, I really want to take the time to flesh out uh, what uh, the uh, emailer is, is asking. But this is a question about John 3.36. 
And it's actually a good question. All of these are good questions. I wouldn't include them if they weren't good questions. Um, but here's where John the Baptist says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And this uh, listener is very astute and pointed out that some translations uh, actually translate this one a little differently. Uh, for example, the New American Standard says, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, instead of believe the Son. Um, uh, NIV is whoever rejects the Son. ESV is whoever does not obey. In fact, New King James is the only one that uses believe in that case. Uh, the Greek word is actually apetheo, and it does mean disobey. That's what it, uh, you know, the way it's translated usually, and that's what the uh, Greek lexicon says. So then how do we explain what, uh, you know, the Word of God is saying here, especially given that again and again we're told that it's faith that is, uh, uh, you know, what saves us. Uh, and here it's, it's basically saying, he who believes the Son has everlasting life, he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. Well, the answer, as with so many things, is to compare uh, Scripture with Scripture. First of all, uh, even before we do that, we can tell contextually that he's contrasting the two responses here, belief and disobedience. So comparing Scripture with Scripture, we know that the task of the unbeliever, if he wants to be saved, is to obey the convicting call of the Holy Spirit and respond in faith to believe the gospel. But fortunately, it's not even uh, as complicated as understanding that faith, believing the gospel can be described in terms of obeying the gospel. We have biblical uh, passages that say this, at least three of them by my count, and I've talked about these uh, in uh, several different contexts in the past and presentations that I've done in a, uh, you know, academic setting or in soteriological-themed conferences. But, for example, Romans 10, 16, Paul is talking about the nation of Israel, and he says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Before that, he says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Well, what does that mean? When they heard the good news, they didn't respond favorably. They rejected it instead of uh, believing it. And then 2 Thess 1, 8, uh, here is, you know, he's talking about God's uh, judgment on unbelievers. And he says, um, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do, do not obey the gospel of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Again, obeying the gospel. What does that mean? It means to believe the gospel. You see the same thing in 1 Peter 4.17, the third time that phrase uh, is used. Uh, if I can get my fingers to work here. 1 Peter 4, 7, and it says, the end of all things is at hand, I'm sorry, 17, I thought 4, 7 sounded familiar, 1 Peter 4, 17, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will the end be of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Again, speaking of unbelievers. So the short answer is John 3.36. Of course, the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Greek. Different English translations will translate it uh, differently. And uh, John 3.36 in the New King, King James, just based on the context, chooses to translate uh, that word apetheo as does not believe, even though technically it means does not obey. Uh, but the context is, if you believe the Son, you're going to have everlasting life if you believe the gospel. But if you don't believe the gospel, that is, you don't obey it when you are presented with it, you reject it instead of receiving it, uh, then you, you, the wrath of God still abides on you. Great question. Uh, the next one is uh, someone says, I'm 
been preparing myself to become a Bible teacher, and I think my first study is going to be on biblical worldview. I find biblical discernment with many fellow Christians to be lacking at best. Amen to that. I talked about discernment uh, two weeks ago uh, at Plum Creek Chapel. Um, and I want to do something about it rather than continue to be frustrated by it. So I wondered if you have a preferred book or resource I can use to build my lesson plan and generate ideas. Well, uh, certainly when you're talking about a biblical worldview, I would start with the Bible. I don't mean to be trite, and I'm sure they understand that already. But uh, absolutely, the Bible has a lot to say about uh, creating a, a worldview and how we see life. Uh, in my hermeneutics classes, and we have one uh, full-fledged uh, academic-based uh, hermeneutics or Bible study methods class available uh, at notbyworks.org. You can actually register for it, sign up for it, and it's a 15-week class. Uh, and you can find that in our uh, online store. But uh, in those classes, I talk a lot about worldview. Why do you believe what you believe and how the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices? But in terms of resources outside the Bible, I would highly recommend David Noble's book, Understanding the Times. It's an excellent uh, supplement to uh, you know anything, any biblical study that you might do. And then I might throw this in as well. I'm privileged uh, to be the first inaugural guest on my good friend and your friend too, I'm sure, David Fiorazzo's brand new podcast called Worldview Matters. Worldview Matters, and it will launch on September 11th, uh, so about a month from now. And uh, he's asked me to be the first guest, and our topic is going to be, what is a biblical worldview? So I'll actually be answering uh, this question. Uh, well, the question was about books or resources, but I'm going to be addressing the topic that this uh, person is asking about uh, during that 30-minute segment on uh, on his show. So uh, mark your calendars, uh, worldviewmatters.org, uh, I believe, is his website, um, but uh, we'll be promoting that as we get uh, closer. The next one says this, I hear you say our presidents, past and present, are or could be selected, not elected, and I believe that as well. But as a Christian, I believe to vote for the best candidate that best supports God and his views. Uh, so I guess the question is, if the people we look to are all somewhat corrupted or selected, then who are we as believers supposed to vote for? Or as believers, do we even vote? Uh, so great question. Uh, I certainly sympathize with the perspective. I know we all do. Um, let me clarify a couple of things. First of all, I absolutely believe they're all uh, selected, not could be, are, uh, and I've documented that elsewhere. Uh, but you don't have to agree with me on that. What I tell people is if you have reason to believe that your vote is legitimate and not pretend, then you absolutely have a duty to vote. Um, you know, if you if you have reason to believe that your vote counts and you think it does, then you should vote. Um, there are two issues in my book. Number one, and I don't mean my book that I wrote, although I do address this in the book, but in my mind, there are two issues. Number one, I do believe it's all rigged, and it's it's uh, you know therefore. Uh, our, you know, our votes aren't really counted. It's pretend voting and has been pretend voting for a long time. And so I just refuse to be made the fool of. Going through something that you know is a farce, there's nothing admirable or spiritually you know, exciting about that. It's not like God says, whatever you do, you got to go through the motions and pretend like you're voting. No, it doesn't say that. We, we, if we have the opportunity to weigh in in a legitimate setting and provide 
uh, a our choice of a candidate based on a biblical worldview, like we talked about a second ago, we ought to do it. We absolutely ought to do it. And for a long time in this country, we could and, and did. But once they went to the digital vote tabulation machines, which was more than 20 years ago now, I was talking about this way back in my book, uh, Great Last Day's Deception. I talked about rigged elections. Uh, so this idea of dominion and all that, that's nothing new. But once they went to that, it was very clear that everyone's just going through the motions. The voters are going through the motions. The precinct chairman are going through the motions. The nightly news people that are announcing the results are going through the motions. It's all pretend. They may not realize it's pretend, but it's pretend because at the end of the day, all they do is announce who won, and you have no way to tell if that's true or not. It's all just dashes and dots on a computer server somewhere. Uh, so uh, my answer to the question would be, uh, if you've come to that same conclusion as I have, and again, study it yourself. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but if you've come to that conclusion as I have, why in the world would you vote? Why would you pretend to vote? There's nothing sanctimonious about pretending to vote. If, if there is, then at least save yourself some time and don't bother to get in the car or mail in a ballot. Just, you know, set up a little pretend stand in your kitchen with a little pretend box and pretend like you're putting a, a vote in there. It could be a business card or something. And then and, and clap, slap yourself on the back and say, there, I voted. Because that's essentially uh, what you're doing. But if you haven't come to that conclusion, if you really think that our vote still counts, and by the way, in some sectors it does. You know, I vote in local elections and, you know, uh, school boards and municipalities and even neighborhood associations and those types of things where they use paper ballots and it's a legitimate way to have your voice be heard and, and play a part in the process. So, but if you think that, you know, your actual vote for president or, or congressman and senators counts, then you should vote. And yes, you should vote your conscience. Don't fall into this trap of it's got to be Coke or Pepsi, and if you want iced tea, you're not welcome. Uh, you know, you don't have to vote Republican or Democrat. You can vote for whoever you think the best candidate is. And I, I've talked about this uh, before, but you know, a good example is when uh, Israel, God was trying to find a king uh, in Israel, and uh, uh, the uh, prophet went to uh, uh, Jesse. And he said, I want to see all your sons, because one of your sons is going to be king. And, of course, David paraded all of these strong, strapping, well-suitable uh, sons before uh, Samuel. And, and Samuel said, nope, none of those are the ones. Do you have anybody else? And, uh, you know, Jesse said, well, I got this young little kid. He's basically scrawny, out working with the sheep. He's certainly not the one. And uh, he said, let me see him. And he was the one. He was the one. So the candidates aren't just the ones the media tell us are the leading candidates. You ought to vote your conscience if you believe your vote counts. But if you've come to believe, as I have, that it's all rigged and they're just making a fool of us by making us think we have something to say and they're just sitting in the back dark smoke-filled rooms, uh, same rooms where they sacrifice children, uh, and laughing at us because we go through the motions of voting, then I just refuse to be made a fool of. Uh, the next question is... Um, a good one. It's basically about a deliverance ministry. And this person says they're, they have some contacts or friends that believe that uh, believers need to be delivered from demons in some cases. In fact, one situation they encountered was someone uh, was convinced that Alzheimer's uh, was caused by a demon. Uh, and uh, so folks who are really into this 
deliverance ministry of believers uh, talk about how the Greek word diamonitsomai is mistranslated in their view as demon-possessed, when really it just means demonized. Well, it depends on the context, um, but I think demon-possessed is the right translation. Uh, and uh, so they, they say, you know, I'm inclined to believe that this type of ministry is unbiblical. Uh, what do you think, basically, is what they're asking. Well, the short answer is I, I'm certainly not an expert on uh, demons' deliverance ministry. Um, uh, you know, there are others out there that have interacted more directly, hands-on with the spirit world. I've done it. I've seen, been a part of it. I certainly theologically have talked and written a lot about the presence of Satan's evil spirits and the hierarchy and how he uses them in his conspiracy to take over the world. But I, I by no means consider myself an expert in interacting with demon-possessed people or demon-influenced people. But theologically, what I can tell you is that a believer, uh, and I suspect this person knows this already, but uh, a believer uh, cannot be indwelt by a demon because the Holy Spirit's already taken up residence. But believers certainly can be influenced by demons. Demons are Satan's minions. Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to defeat us. We were we are told in Scripture uh, to be sober and vigilant because our enemy, the devil, is walking around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour and uh, whether you think Satan's a demon or not, I tend to think that he is. Uh, but either way, he's the prince of demons. He's in charge of the demons. Uh, and certainly it follows then that his demons are uh, willing to attack believers as well. And I've seen uh, you know, demonic encounters and I've been felt to spiritual warfare in very real paranormal type ways uh, throughout my ministry. Uh, so I don't, you know, I wouldn't automatically assume that uh, everyone that is focusing on demon uh, deliverance in the, in the life of Christians is a charlatan or a shyster. Uh, I just think you have to really carefully search the scriptures and come up with an accurate biblical view of demonology and angelology and then act accordingly. In a recent, not too distant past, a prophecy night, we talked about uh, some of the manifestations of demonic influence. Uh, and so, Bottom line is believers can certainly be influenced by it. Uh, there are ways in Scripture that we see uh, descriptively that you should deal with that, using the Word of God, naming the name of Jesus, those types of things. Um, but I would disagree uh, that what, the, what this person's uh, contacts seem to be saying, based on what uh, she wrote in the email, uh, which seems to be that there's really no such thing as demon possession. It's just being impacted by demons, and that can happen to anyone. It can happen to anyone, but there is also a specific type of demon possession that unbelievers uh, can experience. Uh, next question. In your last Q&A, you discussed the parable of the prodigal son, and you said the older son reflected Israel and the younger son the Gentiles. Actually, no, I didn't. If I, I might have said that at some point in the overall discussion when I was just speaking quickly, because I do try to get through these questions quickly. But the parable of the lost son, the basically Jesus is speaking to Israel, and he's trying to contrast the self-righteous piety of the older son with the humility of the younger son, who eventually comes to himself, the prodigal, comes back to the father and says, I'm not worthy. And I think I commented in that previous episode that uh, that throughout Jesus' ministry, he juxtaposes the self-righteousness of the Jewish leaders and unbelieving Jews with the dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles. But I didn't mean to imply that in this parable, he specifically identifies uh, the younger son as a Gentile. I think 
that's a good application. The younger son basically represents anybody who comes to their senses and realizes, I'm in trouble and I need a Savior. And then when you come to that place of recognizing your own unworthiness, your own sinfulness, it's only then that you can receive the free gift of eternal life uh, that Jesus purchased with his own blood. So, um, you know, for what that's worth. But their question then goes on to say, based, assuming that, uh, the, in their view, the older son was Israel, unbelieving Israel, and the younger son was the Gentiles, uh, if you carry that parable to its logical conclusion, the father tells the older son, child, you are always with me, and all that is mine, uh, all, all that I have is mine. Uh, I'm sorry, all that is mine is yours. <laughs> Uh, this is a different version that they put in the email, so I had it memorized in the New King James. But anyway, uh, are they saying, is this speaking of the covenant God has had with Israel and always will have with Israel? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, remember, one of the rules of parables is to keep the big picture in mind. As Lucas and I have been talking about, unless the parable explicitly identifies a detail, we shouldn't try to make a correspondence between some uh, you know, superfluous detail. The point is, um, you know, God says, look, Israel... All along, it's kind of the same thing that Jesus says in the parable of the talents. You've had a privileged position as the apple of God's eye all along. All you have to do is believe like Father Abraham did. If you'll believe in me, you can be saved. And uh, I think that's really the essence of what he's uh, saying there. Um, Another short question here. I'm looking for a church that also teaches the book of Revelation. Two churches that I've attended only seem to have a small group study on the book. Well, you're fortunate if they even have that these days. Um, They don't seem to preach about end times in their sermons. This concerns me a lot. And uh, it caught my eye when they said, I live in Girdwood, Alaska, and I drive into Anchorage. What do you suggest? Well, it just so happens I have a perfect suggestion for you. you we, get, we get these kind of emails all the time, and most often I have to say, look, I'm sure there is a good church in your area. I'm just not familiar enough with the churches in that area to recommend one. But in this case, I am. And uh, my good friend Mark Fontecchio is the pastor of Pioneer Baptist Church in Wasilla, not far from Anchorage, a suburb of Anchorage, basically, you might say. Uh, if you can drive to Anchorage, you can drive to Wasilla, and I highly recommend it. Uh, if you go to Pioneer Baptist in Wasilla, tell Mark I said hello. We've had Mark on the program a few times. Uh, he's just real busy over the summer. You know, in Alaska, summer is prime time. That's when you get out, you hike, and he loves to hike with his family and camp and things like that and get on the, the, the rivers and with his boat. So he's just been really, really busy. We'll have him back on for sure. Uh, he also co-authored uh, my eschatology textbook, What Lies Ahead, uh, out, which we have out there. Uh, great guy. Highly recommend him. You should check him out. Pioneer Baptist in Wasilla. Okay, uh, here's another question. Where do we go until the rapture when we die? Are we judged or is there only one judgment day? Does God truly forget our sins when we repent and aren't judged on them? Uh, what is the difference between the rapture and the second coming? So a whole lot of questions here. Uh, and let me see if I can just mention point by point. Um, so where do we go until the rapture when we die? Well, we go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. Second uh, Corinthians 5 tells us that. Uh, to be absent from the body is to be present uh, with the Lord. So that's an easy one. Scripture is very clear on that. Um, and then at the rapture, we come back with Christ and our bodies, our physical bodies, are resurrected at that time. That's when we get our glorified bodies. Um, but until then, we're in the presence of the Lord. Uh, are we judged? Well, remember, there is no judgment uh, for 
believers. Judgment is only for unbelievers. Sometimes this gets confusing because Paul uses in Scripture an analogy of the uh, Roman uh, judgment seat, uh, the bema it was called in Greek, and it's where the local magistrates would sit on a raised platform in the town Agora, and they would make rulings on different disputes and cases. And Paul basically says believers one day uh, in the church age are going to sit uh, before stand before the Lord, and he's going to reward us. It won't be a judgment in the sense of right or wrong, or did you go to heaven or not, or do you go to heaven or not. It's just a time of reward or lack of reward. We see this in many passages in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14. Uh, lots of passages talk about rewards, and when you collate them all together, we understand that to be at the judgment seat of Christ. But that's not a judgment in the normal use of the term. In fact, Jesus said in John 5, 24, that if we believe in him, we passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. So our issue of our eternal destiny is quite secure. Uh, and then uh, what is the difference between the rapture and the second coming? Well, uh, as I mentioned at the outset of the program, uh, we're going to spend the last three uh, weeks of prophecy night, or I should say the next three, at which will be the last for this season. We're going to suspend it for the fall as I enter my heavy travel season and, and finish up the book that I'm working on. Uh, so uh, these final three, we're going to we're going to talk about the rapture and the second coming. What's the difference? So I encourage the this person to tune in on Tuesday nights. You can live stream it at 6 o'clock Mountain, or you can watch it after it's over. We post the video and the audio both separately. I mean, the video has audio in it, but we post a video and an audio-only version uh, at our website. Uh, but the short answer is the rapture is for believers. Uh, it happens prior to the seven-year tribulation. Uh, it's when the, he rescues us from the, the coming day of the Lord's wrath. And the second coming happens at the end of the tribulation when we come back with him. And uh, we uh, will. He, it's at the Battle of Armageddon, and he ushers in uh, the kingdom. But check out Prophecy Night uh, coming up starting this Tuesday for that one. Uh, hello, Dr. Hickson. I have two questions. What are your thoughts on Robert Kennedy Jr.? Is he controlled opposition? I don't know how controlled he is. Um, I don't. I don't really like him as a as a leader necessarily, you know, like if I believed in real elections, I don't think I would vote for him because his worldview is just too disparate from the biblical worldview. But I certainly applaud and commend his efforts to expose the control of Irish scamdemic fraud. He's been on the leading edge of that for a long time. I've read some of his books. I've, I've listened to him frequently. Uh, he res A lot of what he says resonates with me, but he's not coming from an overall same perspective that we are in terms of what God has revealed to us in his word. Um, he could be controlled opposition. Um, it's just hard to say. Uh, there, are, there are other candidates out there that I'd be more confident in uh in, in presuming them to be controlled opposition. Uh, I've mentioned Tucker Carlson and uh, others before him, Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, uh, even Rush Limbaugh, people like that. Uh, but uh, RFK, hard to say. Uh, uh, anyway, that's my answer on that one. And then the second question was, how large a generator do you have to have to run a well pump? That's a great question. It's beyond my technical knowledge, except to say that I did look into it years ago when we were living on some property and we wanted to possibly uh, run... Uh, uh, solar to be able to run our well pump. And back then, solar generators really weren't powerful enough to, to pump water up from three, 400 feet underground. Um, 
you know, it depends on how deep the well is. It depends on a lot of factors. Uh, I would encourage you to email maybe Randy or uh, someone that uh, you would have more knowledge about that. Okay, the next question. I'm struggling to understand the relationship of Israel to the church during the millennium. Uh, I subscribe to a dispensational interpretation of prophecy and believe in pre-tribulation rapture and a premillennial second coming. I believe that the rapture church will rule as the bride of Christ during the millennium. I also believe that the church will be comprised of Jew and Gentile, as described in Ephesians 2. However, Ezekiel 40-48 describes a redeemed Israel ruling on earth during the kingdom, and it's hard to see the joint rulership in that picture. Could you please give us your views on this? Well, uh, there is going to be a joint rulership of sorts, because the Bible says there will be. Obviously, Ezekiel is not going to mention the church, because the church was a mystery. It hadn't been revealed yet, so it, would never, it never appears in the Old Testament. But we get a picture that there will be certain believers that will of the church age that will have positions of authority. We see this in Luke 19. Uh, we also see this in uh, Hebrews with the idea of the metachoi, the co-reigners. We see it with Jesus telling his disciples, for example, that they would have special uh, positions of, of reigning on 12 thrones with him. But that doesn't mean that every believer in the church age is going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. It's a one of the rewards, one of the most common rewards, is a special position of leadership in the kingdom. Uh, it's going to be a big world, though, and the nation of Israel will also play a prominent uh, role. And I believe, uh, as do many, that David, for example, a resurrected David, uh, resurrected at the second coming, Daniel 12, 2, will be sitting on a throne uh, as, as, you know, favorite king of Israel. I think others will have positions. So I think there's going to be more uh, multiple positions enough to go around. Uh, as to the details, you know, uh, we, we can't really speculate too much, but it would be interesting, and others have done this, to, to go through and sort of put, pick out the biblical data and try to paint a picture. But the short answer is, yeah, both the church members of the some members of the church and Israel some members of Israel will have positions of leadership uh, during the kingdom okay um, this question is about John 17 so let me call this verse up here I'm so thankful for technology that I can use my software to quickly get to verses assuming I can type uh, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word so this is beautiful passage where Jesus is not only praying for his first century disciples, but praying for all believers in the church age. So Jesus actually prayed for you, and he's praying for us. Um, and, and his prayer is that they all may be one as you, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you uh, sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have loved them as you have loved me. So the question is, what are some aspects of Jesus' unity with the Father that believers should reflect in their unity with one another? Great question. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's worthy of a little bit of time here. But the first passage that came to my mind was Philippians 2, where he sort of answers that question explicitly. He says, uh, Let this mind be in you, which also uh, was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every uh, knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Therefore, my beloved, in other words, in light of that, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So, wow, uh, that passage is so powerful. Um, but I think it gives us a picture of what our task is as believers, is to uh, reflect the humility, because he said before the verse that we started reading, he said, uh, fulfill ye uh, my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. That's what our task is, which is what Jesus prayed uh, would happen. Uh, but, you know, when he, when he goes on down here and talks about the way to do that is to work out your salvation, he's not saying work for or work up. Uh, we don't have to work for our salvation. I encourage you to check out my message from yesterday at Plum Creek Chapel on Finish Strong, which was uh, just, I discussed at length how we don't have to work for salvation. So that's certainly not what's going on here. But he's saying, live it out in such a way that you will reflect this type of humility and unity uh, and self-sacrifice with others, following Jesus' example. For it is God who works in you both to will, God gives us the desire through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and to do the, the energy, he gives us that as well, his good pleasure so that we will please and satisfy him is the idea there. So I think uh, to the extent that we are following after the Spirit and not walking in the flesh, then we are going to reflect God's glory. And so I wouldn't, you know, drill down too granular on all of that. Uh, you know, we're dealing with the Trinity. We're dealing with some pretty amazing concepts in Scripture that we just take uh, at face value. We can't always explain them perfectly. Uh, but in the same sense that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one, we as the church ought to reflect the righteousness of Christ within us, which will therefore glorify uh the Father in the same way that Jesus' obedience glorified the Father. So ho hope that helps uh, some. And by the way, it goes without saying on all of these that, first of all, you know, study the Word yourself, and, and I know you do because the questions are, you know, emanate from the Scriptures. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I hope everybody understands that in the nature of this type of program, I'm not intending to give a comprehensive doctoral thesis about uh, each of these. Uh, if I've written something in more detail about it, I'll point you to it. Uh, but these are just some quick answers that come to my mind as we uh, get as we look at the questions. Uh, here's one. Uh, we are doing a Sunday school at church that involves Solomon's temple, and we got into a discussion about the different temples. It got me thinking about the third temple, the one the Antichrist will desecrate, and I can't think of any reference as to what will happen to that temple during the rest of the tribulation. Uh, clearly, there's going to be a completely different temple. Uh, this person says perhaps outside Jerusalem due to the extent of the land it will need. We read about the dimensions of the temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Uh, so no, it won't. The, the, the millennial temple, I might clarify, will not be outside Jerusalem. It'll be in Jerusalem in a in a you know broader uh, temple mount. Uh, the topography of, of Jerusalem changes when Christ comes back. Uh, but as to the, the heart of the question, <coughs> we... Uh, we know that the tribulation temple gets destroyed because it's replaced by Ezekiel's temple. 
which will be the fourth temple. So you had Solomon's temple, then you had what's commonly referred to as Herod's temple because he completed it and made renovations to it. Um, that Then it was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. Then you've got the temple that will be rebuilt, which the Antichrist will take the throne in and declare himself to be God. Uh, it's going to be destroyed, presumably, by all of the uh, you know warfare and bloodshed surrounding the campaign of Armageddon at the second coming and leading up to the second coming, plus all of the judgments uh, of the tribulation period that we read about in Revelation 6 to 18. So uh, although there's no chapter and verse that says, thus saith the Lord, this temple is destroyed, when you connect all the dots, it's clear that that temple is gone and the new temple, the one from which Christ himself will reign, takes its place in the millennium. All right, here's a question. My husband and I are attending a church that is calling a new pastor to replace their old pastor who's retired. The new candidate is Calvinist, historic premillennialist, and post-trib. By the way, historic premill and post-trib are essentially synonyms. That basically just means that uh, they believe in a literal earthly thousand-year kingdom, unlike an amillennialist who says there is no kingdom, we're living in the kingdom now. Uh, but they essentially don't see a distinction between the church and Israel, and they believe there's only one return of Christ. I'm going to dispel that mistake in these coming prophecy nights. This rapture and the second coming are not the same thing. Um, and th this just popped into my mind. Someone pointed out to me that I think it was not yesterday, but last Sunday at Plum Creek, I was making reference to Wayne Grudem, and I uh, hastily uh, misspoke and said he was amillennial. He's actually historic premill, which I know. I, I've spent a lot of time with him and talked with him at, in, in person. Uh, he's absolutely historic premill. In my mind, if you're not premillennial, which is the biblical view, I don't mean to sound you know, trite here or, or uh, flippant, but it's true. If you're not premillennial and understand a literal earthly reign of Christ uh, over Israel uh, in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, then you may as well be amill. There's really, you know, a false view and a right view. And so I tend to sometimes in my mind, you know, hastily lump all those guys together. Uh, and I should have said he was historic pre-mill to be more accurate. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's Wayne Grudem we're talking about. Great guy, loves the Lord, as far as I can tell in my interaction with him, but he's got some views that we would disagree with. Um, so anyway, uh, this person is saying this new candidate for their church is historic pre-mill, which means they're post-trib. Um, the elders are, are united in inviting this man. Um, several members of us have been there 25 years, some of us, and we do not want to compromise our beliefs. The church apparently historically has been dispensational pre-trib. Um, uh, but we also hesitate to look again for another church. We're in our 70s, they, this person says, and apostasy is everywhere. Um, they said there is a possibility, they're a small church, and there's a possibility that a few votes in the congregational vote could derail the candidacy of this pastor. And so the question they're asking is, do we possibly vote our conscience and derail this calling, or do we vote yes and leave quietly if we can't take the change? We seem to be between a rock and a hard place looking for some guidance from God's Word. Uh, well, I always hesitate to, to weigh in on you know specific church politics because I don't have all the details other than this short email, but I think there's enough here to give me the, the foundation for my advice, anyway, my counsel, uh, I don't think you should attend a church that is Calvinist because the gospel is what matters most. And 
you know, Calvinists teach that in order to be saved, you have to forsake all your sins, turn to, you know, turn away from them, uh, pledge allegiance to God, repent of all your sins, make a firm commitment to follow him, and that there's a, there, there's a sense in which faith, which they believe in faith alone, sola fide, but they define faith differently than the Bible does, in my opinion, and they make it out to be this two-way bilateral contract. Faith has to include this promise or pledge of obedience that you're surrendering something to the Lord. You're giving him something. You're promising, Lord, I'm going to follow you. And that's big. That's huge. I've certainly written and talked about that a lot, and you know my view on that. And so that alone, to me, is a non-starter. Some time ago, uh, my friend Mark Fontecchio and I, who I just mentioned a moment ago from Wasilla, Alaska, did a podcast on non-negotiables when selecting a church. I encourage this person who wrote this question to to go find that podcast. If you go to notbyworks.org and click on our podcast there, it'll link you up to any number of podcast apps like Apple and Spotify and Pandora and Podbean and, and Google. Uh, and anyway, if you go to our channel, the Not By Works Ministries channel, you, you can l- watch, listen to every podcast we've ever posted since we first started posting them. There's over 500 of them now. Uh, and if you scroll through there, you may even be able to search it. I can't remember. You'll find the one. It was titled Non-Negotiables When Selecting a Church. I encourage you to listen to that because it'll give you uh, some more detailed answers than what I'm giving you here. But I don't think it would be wise to to not vote your conscience, first of all. I mean, that's never a good idea. Here's an example where voting presumably matters. I, don't, I doubt that this church is using the Dominion voting system to count the votes, uh, although I could tell you some funny stories about church votes through the years. But anyway, uh, so I definitely wouldn't just go along to get along. That's not proper. That's an integrity issue. You should vote your conscience. Uh, and if that means the guy doesn't come, he doesn't come. I mean, you're a member of that church and the body of Christ is important and every member counts. So, uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, you know, not vote your conscience. Um, but another alternative would be, uh, if you feel like, you know, regardless of, uh, you know, how it goes, this is going to disrupt everything. And, and evidently the elders are now, undiscerning and don't think there's a big issue with being Calvinist and historic premillennialist, uh, then maybe the best thing would be to possibly just prayerfully walk away and, and start another church or something like that. But uh, I can't give you a specific answer, but I definitely wouldn't compromise on that issue. Uh, this next question is from someone who wants to know, uh, based on Colossians 3, this is the reference. Uh, they didn't put that in there, but I know that's the passage they're talking about. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. How do we seek those things, and what are those things? That's the question. Well, the Bible answers that in the very next verse. Remember, let me read the first verse again, Colossians 3, 1. If then you were raised with Christ, the idea there is since. Since you've been raised with Christ, you're a Christian. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Now listen to this next verse. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. So that's what he means by seeking those things uh, which are above. The word, the phrase set your mind is one word in Greek, and it means to be mindful. In other words, think about. Think about the Lord. Stop dwelling on things on earth, but set your affections, your mind, on spiritual matters. 
That's what it means to seek those things which are above. It's kind of like when Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So I think the practical answer is spend time in the word of God. That's how we know the Lord and get to know him better. That's his, his spiritual truth to us today. And then think about those passages that you read. Meditate on scripture. Uh, let the word of God speak to your heart. Hide it in your heart. And in so doing, it will change your whole perspective. And that's what it means to seek those things uh, which are above. The next question uh, says, uh, some people believe that only the faithful and watching uh, church or Christians will be taken away at the rapture. Uh, based on Revelation 2 and 3, they say the Philadelphian church will be uh, taken away at the rapture, but the Laodiceans will be left behind. Um, yeah, this is called the partial rapture view, uh, or at least this is they, the, those who hold that view use these passages. It's based on passages like Hebrews 9, 28, which says, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And they almost make it sound like watchfulness is a prerequisite to get raptured. But again, this is one of those passages that is uh, you know, descriptive, not prescriptive. We're not required to be watching. Uh, that's pretty clear from Scripture because uh, 1 John 2.28 says we should remain close to the Lord so that we'll be confident when he comes. Uh, you know, if, if we wouldn't even you know, get raptured, then that's a different thing altogether. Uh, but the whole church, the, the, the body of Christ, as Paul makes clear in 1 Thessalonians 4, will be raptured. Um, uh, Revelation 3.10 uh, is just promising a commendation there uh, to the Philadelphian church, which was a literal first century uh, church. Uh, and the commendation is, I'm going to keep you, or the promise, uh, rather, the, 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 he gives a commendation, but the promise here is, I'm going to keep you from the tribulation period. You won't have to go through that uh, tribulation period. Now, that church, that literal historic church, is dead and gone, but again, uh, the doctrine of the rapture is imminent and always has been since it was first unveiled by Jesus in the upper room in John 14. We don't know when it's going to happen. And that passage, actually Revelation 3.10, is a very key proof text among many others to show that the church will not go through the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and many other passages make that case. I'm going to make the case myself for the pre-tribulational view of the rapture in our remaining three prophecy nights for uh, the month of, uh, of August. But uh, so yeah, the short answer is the partial rapture view is, is not accurate, and I respectfully disagree with those who might teach that. And there are a lot of people out there that do teach it, but uh, uh, we will all be caught up together. Uh, this next question, uh, will we, we believers receive a glorified body at the resurrection, but what do unbelievers receive? When they are resurrected at the great white throne, do they stay in these old bodies for eternity? No, that's an easy one also. Uh, our human bodies of flesh and blood are unique to the earth. And uh, that has to do with basic biblical anthropology and what it means to be human. We are currently biological beings uh, that have skin and bones and blood vessels and brains and so forth. Um, and at some point when we die, that goes back to the dust. Uh, Solomon tells us that, and dust to dust. Um, and so in eternity, we won't have these physical bodies. So that's true for believers and unbelievers. All unbelievers, as I describe in my uh, Not By Works book of charts, diagrams, and illustrations, uh, all unbelievers, are their physical bodies are resurrected and given their eternal body at 
the great white throne at the end of the millennium. Uh, what that looks like, what the details are of it, we don't know. We're, we're really not even 100% sure what the glorified bodies of believers look like, except that we will be identifiable, we'll know each other, but it's a perfect body. So yeah, unbelievers will also receive a resurrected body of some sort, and they will be then cast into the eternal lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever. Next question. Good evening, J.B. Hickson. Greetings from Texas. Uh, do you have any updates on Yuval Noah Harari? Well, I am so glad you asked because uh, my new book is getting ever so close to completion. It's titled Spirit of the False Prophet, and I have an entire chapter dedicated to uh, Mr. Harari, and I am just stunned at what I have been reading and researching done quite a big deep dive into some articles going way back uh, when he first kind of came on the public scene uh, and his his personal life, his background. And uh, yeah, I'm going to just kind of leave it at that as a teaser of sorts. Uh, the new book should be out and available to pre-order sometime in mid to late September. And then we will have our inventory in October to start uh, uh, delivering. But it is... Uh, Wow, it's amazing how much is going on in this world that is setting the stage for the coming false prophet, which will be the Antichrist henchman, uh, his sidekick, the one that's going to oversee the Mark of the Beast system. And so uh, we have a whole chapter, as I said, dedicated to you all know Harari in that book. Um, let's see. Uh, I listened to your podcast about not losing. Okay, there's several here, uh, at least three in a row. Uh, four in a row, really, that deal with salvation based on the podcast that I did on the Christian Underground News Network uh, entitled uh, uh, Things That Can Never Undo the Believer's Salvation. So these are pretty serious questions, and I, I just uh, I hope you'll listen carefully to the answers because it definitely struck a chord, and we're still getting emails from people. Uh, so I'm going to just read them as they were worded. I listened to your podcast about not losing your salvation. It makes sense to me. I just have one question. If all we have to do to believe is, if all we have to do is believe to be saved, then if an LGBT person believes, does that same apply for them? Okay, wow, that's a great question. Um, I know what they're getting at uh, here. And again, let me put a plug in for yesterday's message at Plum Creek Chapel. It's available on the highlight carousel of our website or at our Rumble channel or on all of our podcast channels. It was called Finish Strong, and I deal with this ex extensively in that message. But the short answer is, first of all, uh, let me quibble a little bit with the premise. If all we have to do, well, there's no if. The Bible is crystal clear. The one and only condition that everyone must meet in order to get to heaven is belief. So there's no if. Uh, so we do have to believe the gospel. And there's also no asterisk, uh, you know, after that. It's not like, you know, only certain people, when they believe, get saved. Anyone who believes gets saved. Jesus said, um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him, and that includes uh, homosexuals and other people that commit heterosexual sins and all kinds of uh, evil behavior, they can be saved. And then as I explained uh, on that podcast uh, last week, as well as uh, on my sermon yesterday, um, a believer, 
is saved instantly the moment you place your faith in Christ. And nothing you can do after that moment can undo what Jesus did because he says, I give you eternal life. He didn't give you qualified eternal life or conditional eternal life or potential eternal life. He gave you eternal life. We get eternal life the moment we believe, not uh, when, we get, when we die. And so, sadly, uh, there are some believers who, uh, through getting involved in all kinds of uh, either pornography or bad teaching or just hanging around with the wrong crowd, getting out of fellowship with the Lord, getting away from a good Bible-teaching church, not reading their Bible, any number of things can lead believers to become apostate and backslidden. And therefore, they might fall into this sin of uh, LGBT. And if they do, it doesn't undo what they did when they believed. Uh, We're not required to clean up our lives in order to prove to God that we're saved. Faith is alone the requirement for eternal life. Now, as I talked about extensively on yesterday's message, there are serious, serious consequences of sin, especially egregious sins, uh, like sexual sins, in the life of a believer. And it is not something to trifle with at all. And uh, I, I go over the, some of those yesterday, but, you know, swift physical death, uh, lack of joy, you know, disease, um, setting a bad example, loss of rewards, loss of blessing on this earth. So sin is not something you want to toy with. But as it relates to our eternal destiny, and I know this is hard for some people to, to, to accept, but that's what grace is. Grace is absolutely unrelated to works. Romans 11 Whatever of works is of works, whatever is of grace is of grace, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, so, you know, we, we cannot start categorizing and saying, you know, but if, you know, well, we're saved by faith, but if this person is does this, this, or this, well, then they're not going to heaven. Now, you know, I understand I'm probably going to, you know, generate a few more emails from people that say, there's no way, you can't mean to tell me that this homosexual or this, this, or this, that is going to heaven. I don't know if they're going to heaven. All I can tell you is what the Bible says, and the Bible says that our destiny in heaven is not based upon our behavior. And so I'm not suggesting that every practicing and active homosexual who claims to be a Christian really is a Christian. They may not be. Uh, They may have never trusted Christ and Him alone for salvation. But what I'm telling you is it's not their behavior, as abhorrent as it may be, that determines the answer to that question. The only question that matters is, have you trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation? Now, if you believe, as Calvinists do, that believing in Jesus means making a promise or pledge to Him, and therefore you're not keeping that promise, well, then, you know, that's not what the Bible teaches, but I can understand why you might then come to the conclusion that a homosexual cannot possibly be saved. Um, But the Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, Faith is not a contract with God. It's the receiving of a gift. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. So as I said on uh, today's or yesterday's uh, sermon uh, at Plum Creek, you know, when you get saved, the normal natural thing when the Holy Spirit takes up residence is to live out the spiritual life, to produce fruit of the Spirit. Certainly homosexuality and those types of sins are not, produ- they're not the fruit of the Spirit. They're abhorrent uh, to a holy God. Um but that's because the Holy Spirit does not force us to obey Him. I mean, when you get saved, yes, the Holy Spirit takes up residence, and yes, your desires should change, um, but if you quench the Spirit and grieve the Spirit and resist the Spirit, all things the Bible talks about, then you're capable of not 
doing what the Spirit of God is telling you to do. I mean, think about it. If, you know, resisting all sins uh, was guaranteed, then why do Christians ever sin? We all have the same Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit forces us to obey, then shouldn't we all be perfect? The very fact that we're not all perfect shows that there is a cooperative effort between the, the believer's yieldedness and the Holy Spirit's convicting work. The Holy Spirit does not force you to obey and live godly lives any more than the Holy Spirit forces you to receive the free gift in the first place. Now, again, Calvinists would disagree. They think God does God does force you to believe. You don't have a choice in the matter. You just better hope you're elect because you can't believe the gospel. God has to believe for you. You're either in or you're out. That's not the testimony of Scripture. Whosoever will may come. Anybody can believe the gospel, but it's your choice. It's a free choice. Once you've accepted Christ... Then the Holy Spirit takes up residence. You're born again. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're justified, uh, redeemed, reconciled, all of those things. Um, and then at that point, you join the race of life. That the, 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 you know, Between then and when you die, your goal is to live out this new life that you have in Christ, uh, walk godly, yield to the Holy Spirit. But sadly, that's not guaranteed. And if you think it's guaranteed, you better look in the mirror because while you may be proud of yourself because you're not committing homosexuality or other sexual sins or you're not committing murder and all the big, horrible, horrific sins, you are sinning. So how come the Holy Spirit isn't forcing you to obey in all of those areas, right? Uh, I guarantee you there are sins that every believer commits that they've been committing from the day they got saved. Uh, it's not right. And God's dealing with us in those areas. Uh, but to suggest that you know someone who is a homosexual cannot possibly be saved is theologically wrong. Now, please hear me on this, folks. I'm not in any way suggesting that all gays are going to heaven. I, I don't. You know, I would never say that. I assume, like like many of you, that in all likelihood they're not saved. Uh, but I'm saying theologically and biblically, it is possible for someone who's a Christian uh, to engage in abhorrent activity even at that level. The next question is very similar. I just finished listening to your podcast about nothing can undo your salvation. I have a son who professed Christ at nine years old. I was there, and it seemed sincere. Today, he's living in a same-sex relationship. The Bible says homosexuals will not be in God's kingdom. How do you reconcile this? Can a practicing homosexual enter the kingdom of God? Yes. <laughs> yes, he can. They misunderstand 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's, that's the, the premise. In fact, this whole passage is kind of an inclusio. It starts with that premise and it ends with the opposite. The unrighteous, those who've never been justified by faith, will not go to heaven. At the end, he says, some of you are like that, but you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of the Lord. So you are righteous. The unrighteous won't be in the kingdom. The righteous, the justified will. And then in the middle of it, he describes some of the behavior of those who are unrighteous. But the key is that word unrighteous. That's a positional term. You know, remember Jesus said you got to be perfectly righteous to get to heaven. And the only way to have that righteousness is to have it imputed to you by faith. Until you've trusted in Christ, you don't have righteousness. You are unrighteous. And the righteous deeds that you do as an unbeliever are just filthy rags before a holy God. But once you trust Christ, you are declared positionally righteous. And then our task becomes to yield to the Spirit so that our practice resembles our position. 
when we're not yielding to the Spirit, our practice will not resemble our position. And again, try not to be haughty and proud and think, well, I'm not a homosexual, so I must be good. You sin too as a believer. Look in the mirror. And those sins are just as egregious to God as, as anything uh, is. So in this passage, he goes on to say, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. If that's all we had out of context, then we might wonder, well, hmm, how can anybody be in heaven? Because look, who among us hasn't coveted? Anybody out there ever gotten drunk before? Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things in this laundry list. It's not just homosexuals. So he's not saying that homosexuality is a, is a standard against which God will judge whether or not you get in. You know, it's not like you stand before the, the, the doors of heaven someday and God says to Gabriel, give me my list of homosexuals. As long as you're not on this list, you get in. No, the only list that the Lord's going to look at is the book of life. And anybody who in simple childlike faith has trusted in Christ, as this person said their nine-year-old child did, uh, is going to be in heaven. Even if, in the course of our journey on life, in life, we end up getting involved in horrible sins. So people just have this, they've been conditioned to think that entrance into heaven or hell is about our behavior. And it's just not. If it is, none of us will get there. None of us. So before you consign homosexuals automatically to hell, uh, you better think through these passages of Scripture that have been misquoted and misapplied. And again, please don't go out there telling people, oh, Hickson's out there defending homosexuality. Uh, absolutely not. It is an abhorrent sin. It's one of the most demonic sins. I've said this in many places. I say it in my First Spirit of the Antichrist book and in the second, now that I think about it, in chapter 13 that it's one of the most demonic attacks is this attack on gender and the LGBT gender surrender movement. It's terrible. But, you know, even sins that are terrible cannot undo what God did for us at salvation. So the only question that matters is, has that person ever trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation? Uh, not, are they a homosexual? Because if we're going to make that the standard, then we've got to ask, are you a liar? Are you covetous? Have you ever stolen? Do you ever, are you ever jealous? Right? Have you ever angry? In the laundry list that's listed in Galatians 5, anger is included, I believe. So uh, stop trying to see life and the ultimate destiny of people based on behavior and deal with the sin like we should. See, rather than deal with this young man and say, oh, you can't possibly be a Christian, why don't we get to the heart of the matter and ask him, why aren't you living out the new, the new nature. You're, you're a child of the king and you're living like a pauper. Like, you know, you're just, you're out there destroying your life and your body and getting involved with things that are not healthy. You know you're not happy. You know, you may not admit it. You may be self-deceived, but you know you're not happy. Come back to Christ. Come back to Christ. Don't, you know, perpetuate false guilt by convincing him, well, you can't possibly be a Christian because no Christian would act like that. Uh, sadly, uh, they do. Here, that's a news flash for you. Another similar question, not about homosexuality, but it says, my husband did his communion and confirmation from the Catholic Church as a child, but he now claims he's an atheist. Is he saved? Well, again, I don't uh, have the mind of the Lord. I can't tell if he's saved or not, but I can tell you he, he, doing communion and being confirmed in the Catholic Church doesn't save him. That doesn't save anybody. What the Bible says saves you. The only thing that saves you is faith alone in Christ alone. 
So, uh, I mean, that, that's the answer to that question. Uh, has he trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation? Another person asks, is asking Jesus into your heart a biblical concept for salvation? If so, where do we see it in Scripture? We do not see it in Scripture. It's not a biblical concept. I did research on this in my first ever book I wrote, uh, which was also my uh, Ph.D. dissertation. The book ended up being called Getting the Gospel Wrong. Um, and um, But in it, I, I discovered in my research that that phrase of asking Jesus into your heart really originated in early 20th century, um, primarily Baptist circles, never found anywhere in Scripture. Uh, it's, it's a little bit confusing and misleading. Uh, again, the biblical terminology is plain enough. Believe in Jesus. Have you trusted in Jesus? And by the way, that doesn't just mean believe that he exists. As I have explained and as the Bible is clear, it's believing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for your sins and is the only one uh, who can give you eternal life. Just believing in the existence of Jesus doesn't save anybody. It's when you believe that you're a sinner and that only Jesus can forgive your sin and give you the free gift of eternal life. You abandon your faith in your uh, works, in your religion, in your confirmation, in your catechism, in your baptism, and anything else religious that you've done, and you recognize that it's a simple matter of believing in Jesus. The simplest statement of the gospel in all the Bible is John six forty seven, where Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. So no, asking Jesus into your heart doesn't save you. I understand, and there's no place in Scripture that it says that ever. Uh, it is true that once we believe in Jesus unto eternal life, uh, that he takes up residence, and there are passages that speak about him being within us and in our heart as a result of our faith. But uh, never are we told to ask him into our heart in order to be saved. That's simply not biblical, and it's confusing. The next question, uh, because the sun is so extremely hot at this time, and one of the plagues during the Great Tribulation will be the sun scorching mankind, do you think God is slowly lowering the sun in preparation for that plague? I think it could be a possibility. I mean, we don't know, but it certainly could be a setting of the stage, um, uh, or God could just do it suddenly uh, sometime in the future. So, uh, good question. The next question, uh, oh, I don't like these questions, <laughs> but I put it in here because you asked, and uh, yeah, I want to be honest and, and you know about it. Um, it's the age-old question about pets. What happens to pets? Will they get raptured, and so on and so forth? So, so look, if if you need to believe that your pets have an eternal soul in order to be at peace, you know, go for it. I mean, I'm not gonna quibble over it. It's not like this is a matter of orthodoxy or heretic, you know, heretical nature or anything like that. All I can tell you is what the Bible says. And the Bible clearly distinguishes between God's highest pinnacle of creation, mankind, the biblical anthropology that we are made into the image of God, and he breathed into us this spirit, this eternal spirit, and every other created being. So trees do not have an eternal soul. And neither do animals, I'm, I'm sorry to say. So they, they have emotion, they are sentient in a sense, but they don't have an eternal component. Only human beings have an eternal component. And so, uh, you know, uh, in, in terms of God's created uh, biological realm, the angelic realm, angels uh, eternal are eternal, but they don't procreate, they can't, you know, reproduce anything like that. I'm talking about biological creation. Um, so therefore, no pets will not be raptured. Uh, but again, I, 
you know, don't hate me because I'm just trying to be honest here. The easiest thing for me to, to say would be to tell you what you want to hear. But as I study the scripture, I, I just I don't see it. Uh, the next question is, when exactly did dinosaurs live? They lived sometime in the last 6,000 years. And as I mentioned uh, last Tuesday night at Prophecy Night, there's some evidence that they're even still around today in certain remote parts of the world. Uh, but absolutely, dinosaurs were created with all other animals. They were on the ark. That doesn't mean that every giant uh, kind of dinosaur was there. Remember, it was one uh, of each uh, kind. Uh, so... Uh, and they might have been young, newborn dinosaurs, or even a dinosaur egg, potentially. Um, but the point is, yeah, dinosaurs lived sometime uh, coexisting with mankind during the last 6,000 years. Uh, regarding the Big Bang, could it be that when God spoke the world into existence, that's what the Big Bang was? Nope, not, absolutely not. Uh, scripture is clear that he spoke the world uh, into existence ex nihilo. Uh, he didn't use Big Bang. Big Bang is a false theory created by Darwinians to try to explain how we all evolved over billions of years from a wet rock, uh, and it's not, uh, it's not biblical. All right, this next question is uh, it's a little bit involved, uh, but I'm going to do my best to try to answer it. And we're getting close. I think I have, after this one, I've got maybe four or five more. Some of them are short, so bear with me. Uh, so this is an Instagram post that someone forwarded, and they thought, well, I'd like an answer. So I'm going to try to read it the way it's worded and then explain what, what I think they're saying. Uh, the, this person says, the definition of sin, according to the Bible, is to defy the laws of God. To become a human would defy his claim in numbers. They're talking there about where God is not human, Right. Uh, so saying that if God became human at the incarnation, then he's disobeying his own law. This person goes on to say to sacrifice a human would defy his disgust with the pagan civilizations that pr practiced human sacrifice uh, that surrounded Israel, as Isaiah and Hosea and other prophets talk about. It is a clear violation of the sacrificial ceremonies explicitly detailed in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy to allow the ultimate atonement to be acted out and handled by Roman centurions instead of Levitical priests. You can see where they're going with this. If God did all that in order to act out this self-sacrificing atonement, then no one can claim he was sinless. He sinned against himself, which I don't believe he would have done. Besides, God doled out forgiveness and the Holy Spirit all throughout the Old Testament without any need for human blood sacrifice. Why did that change with the penning of the New Testament? Well, so this person does not understand the value of the blood. And I talked about this on a recent uh, interview that I did with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. And I mentioned at the outset of our program today that we're going to post the audio-only version of that four-part series. We're going to release them one at a time. On Tuesday, part one will be released. I don't remember which one of them that she asked this very question. But the question is, in essence, why... A blood sacrifice. Well, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So this person is is not does not have a biblical bibliology, a proper understanding of the Bible, which is that it is the inerrant, infallible, trustworthy Word of God. So whatever God says goes. God cannot contradict Himself, but He certainly is not accountable to some external set of rules and standards. He is the standard. So whatever God does is right by definition. And if you don't believe that, then then you have a problem because you don't have a God and you have no source of absolute truth. But uh, going all the way back to the garden, the first thing that happened after Adam and Eve sinned is the shedding of blood. God killed the animals to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. And you can just imagine 
uh, how that must have seemed to them in that moment, having never seen death. Remember, the Bible says death came as a result of sin, and that's, that's what we see played out there with God killing those animals. And then we see repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, contrary to what this person said, that the sacrificial system prefigured and foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice of the ultimate Lamb of God. The Jews were not saved eternally because they went through the motions of the sacrifices. The book of Hebrews makes that crystal clear. Those things were just a shadow of the substance which was in heaven, uh, a temple not made with hands, and that being Jesus Christ. And so, uh, this person just doesn't understand how God used symbolism, going all the way back to the garden, to talk about the importance, uh, uh, for certain, first of all, the seriousness of sin and the importance of blood atonement. And then secondly, that's what makes Christ's atoning sacrifice unique, is that he wasn't just a man. God wasn't just capitulating to the pagan human sacrifice rituals of the ancient Near East. God was Jesus was God. He was the God man. He was both. And God climbed atop that altar himself. And God shed his blood himself to pay the penalty for your sin and for our sin. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the New Testament doesn't is perfectly consistent with the Old Testament. God never lies. The New Testament doesn't change anything than the Old Testament said. Uh, God is not uh, contradicting himself. This person is holding God accountable to human standards, and that's, uh, that's not accurate. So the only hope of salvation is the shed blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no atonement. And unless you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for you on the cross, you cannot be saved. Um, here's a question about tongues. I'll try to be brief on this one. Uh, I had mentioned this in an answer to a previous question, and so this is a follow-up. Some people say that the tongues in 1 Corinthians 13 are an unknown language, uh, which is not true. Uh, that's just provably false, uh, with all respect to people who hold that view. If you've been taught that, uh, you know, your whole life, then you sincerely believe it, uh, but you need to do your own research and figure it out. It's just like Western doctors today who sincerely believe that vaccines are good for you. Well, uh, yeah, we learned anything from COVID it's that that's not true. Um, uh, but anyway, this person cites 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. As I said in a previous episode of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Question, tongues there is glossa, just means... Uh, a known language. Uh, angels have a language. We know about that from Romans 8, 26, where uh, you know, the Spirit of God, for example, can intercede on our behalf with groanings and utter utterances that cannot be uttered. Uh, that was a bad paraphrase. Let me look it up. Uh, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know we, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with, with groanings which cannot be uttered. That's not us groaning with random gibberish and syllabification. That's the Spirit of God on our behalf. Uh, not that the Spirit's an angel. I misspoke there. But uh, we certainly know that angels can communicate in ways. But glossa just always means, glossolalia just means the, a known language. And in the New Testament era, in the, in the first century apostolic age, part of 
the fulfillment of prophecy was the fact that people were going to be miraculously able to speak in a known but unlearned language that they'd never studied. Instinctively, they were going to be able to start speaking another language. And the Spirit of God was going to use that to validate to the unbelieving Jews in the audience that this, is, this move of God, uh, the resurrection of Christ and the birthday of the church, is of, of the Lord. So uh, wouldn't, I just wouldn't agree with the, 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 what people say there about that. Um, this next question, I'm looking forward to your next book. What chance is there for it to be available for those of us in the UK? It's been pretty hard to obtain the last two. Well, uh, you're right, uh, but we do sell uh, both Spirit of the Antichrist books in the UK. Uh, it's expensive. It's extremely expensive to ship there. We only pass on the shipping charge, uh, but it's typically uh, forty to fifty bucks, and sometimes more. We I've seen as much as seventy-five dollars to ship two books in a padded envelope to places like Australia, New Zealand, even Canada. It just depends on your specific address, um, and that's just regular, the cheapest shipping. Uh, so, but we do sell there. We sell. Uh, on our Not By Works store to New Zealand, to the UK, to Australia, to Canada. Uh, and we will ship anywhere, even though our shipping system online may not uh, allow it outside of those cities, or those countries I just mentioned. But if you live somewhere else and you want one of our books, send us an email. And my daughter, Brooke, who handles all of that, she will uh, look into it, tell you, get, get a shipping address from you, tell you exactly what it's going to cost. And if you want to uh, pay for it, we will ship it to you. I wish we were independently wealthy and had unlimited financial resources. We'd give books away worldwide. I think these two, Spirit of the Antichrist and the forthcoming Spirit of the False Prophet books, are so critical for such a time as this, and they so clearly give the good news, the gospel as well. I wish I could give them all away. And we have given literally hundreds of them away. Uh, we do give them away frequently to people. I can't tell you how often people will I'll talk to them on the phone, and, and I can just tell they, they could really benefit from the book, but they're not in a place to be able to afford it, and we send them one. Or I give them away at, in conversations that I have around the office or other places. So we're not trying to, to get rich here by any means, but there is a cost to these books. And, and so, uh, you know, they are available in the UK, and, and similarly, the new book will be as well. Uh, the other thing I'll mention is that we do have digital versions of the books, a PDF that can be easily imported into Kindle or any other e-reader. Uh, I'm not a Kindle guy, so I can't tell you how to do it, but I know it can be done because we've had thousands of people literally have purchased it over the last two years, uh, or the last uh, year, let's see, a two, year and a half, uh, and uh, and it's easily done. I'm sure there's a YouTube video on how to do it or a help section of your Kindle to how to do it. But if you have a PDF, you can import that into Kindle. So we sell the PDFs. Uh, I think they're $15. Uh, it's the exact same book that's in print, even down to the cover, but we send it to you digitally, and there's no shipping charge. So if that would be helpful, uh, keep that in mind. Just go to notbyworks.org slash store. Or even easier, you can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org, uh, and uh, you, you can find find them there and purchase them, and we'll email them right to you. But thanks for the encouragement, and uh, be on the lookout for the new one coming out uh, soon. Uh, this person asks, since flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, how do those who get saved during the tribulation and survive get to go into the kingdom? Great question, and uh, let me clarify Paul's premise there of the kingdom. He's talking about the eternal kingdom after the old earth and old heaven are destroyed after the millennium, in other words. So there will still be flesh and blood on the earth during the millennium. That's clear enough. Um, 
Those who survived the tribulation, as this person said, will be, and their believers, they got saved during the tribulation and lived to tell about it, uh, they will be in their physical bodies on earth at the start of the millennium, and they will be the ones that uh, procreate and repopulate the earth. But at the end of the age, remember, the kingdom is eternal. It's not just a thousand years. The kingdom goes on forever and ever, the Bible tells us uh, several places. Uh, so in the eternal kingdom, when all is said and done and time shall be no more, there will be no uh, flesh and blood. We'll all be in our glorified bodies. Hallelujah. Uh, another quick question here. Do you feel that music, the, the downgrading of music in churches today uh, uh, is, uh, let's see, do you, do you feel that this musical trend has led to the downgrading of our church services and lukewarm believers as the wonderful majestic hymns of the past have been thrown out? Yeah, so this person is just uh, advocating for uh, hymns. Uh, the hymns are great. They have some great uh, theology behind them. Not all of them. Uh, we sung one yesterday at Plum Creek Chapel in which we had to change one of the lines of a hymn because it was not doctrinally right. And so we just changed it and the words on the screen uh, said differently. But it was a, a great old hymn. Uh, but this person's right. Music has definitely been downgraded. A lot of music is doctrinally unsound and it's also uh, mystical in nature and, and so forth. Uh, and I do think that that is by design. I think Satan's trying to infiltrate the church and uh, just lead us astray, deceive us. Um, but uh, you know, I would be a little more nuanced than perhaps some people are on it. I think there are a lot of great new songs that are doctrinally sound and just really lead us before the throne. And Personally, I like a lot of the new stuff. Uh, depends on the content. Uh, I'm a theologian by trade, and so I'm going to uh, you know, be keenly interested in what are the words. It doesn't matter the tune or the tempo to me. Some are more appealing than others, but I'm going to scrutinize the lyrics and make sure they're doctrinally sound. And if they are, I'm not going to dismiss it just because it's new. Uh, and, uh, you know... Uh, anyway, yeah, that, that's kind of my answer to that. But I would say yeah, certainly we do need to sing some of the great old hymns of the faith and teach our young people some of the truths that they, uh, they have. I, I would say the hymn writers of a bygone era were much smarter theologically, much more educated theologically than they are today. Today, anyone can call themselves a songwriter and sit down and come up with a creative song, and it may or may not be true to the biblical text. So... Uh, so yeah, that's my thoughts on that. This person asked, does JB have a list of Bible prophecies that have been fulfilled since 1948 to the present? Uh, or what book would cover this? Well, first of all, let me clarify the premise. Uh, and I've talked about this before. So Bible prophecies are not being fulfilled, quote unquote, today. The next Bible prophecy that will be fulfilled is the rapture. So what we see today is the setting of the stage. We see things aligning to prepare for the rapture and then, of course, subsequently uh, the, the tribulation and all of those types of things. So uh, I get into this in uh, some of my streaming videos that I've done. Uh, I also get into it a little bit in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1, in the opening chapters. But we are living in the last of the last days based on the signs of the times, but that doesn't mean prophecy is being fulfilled. And remember, I have talked about elsewhere, and I'm not sure if this person must not have heard that, but just recently I talked about at Prophecy Night that I don't believe 1948 fulfilled a specific prophecy. It was very clearly prophetically significant in that 
Israel now has a nation to call home, which we know in the end times they're going to have because the Lord regathers them supernaturally into that land. Uh, and so it definitely sh did and should have gotten our attention. It's a setting of the stage. But I do not believe it fulfills a specific prophecy because the next prophecy on God's prophetic calendar, the next event, is uh, the rapture. But uh, I don't mean to quibble over the way they worded the question. I would recommend a, a book uh, that uh, I have on my shelf. It's by John Walbert. It's called The Prophecy Knowledge Handbook, which deals with every prophecy in Scripture, including those that have already been fulfilled, uh, such as the virgin birth and uh, those types of things, uh, and those that are, await future fulfillment. So a uh, great book. It's called The Prophecy Knowledge Handbook. Anything by John, the late John Walbert, uh, who I, I had as a professor, one of the preeminent uh, eschatology experts of our day, is worth having on your shelf. But that's a great resource, The Prophecy Knowledge Handbook. And then, finally, the last question Will, uh, this person says, I'm in a debate with someone about whether or not the church will know who the Antichrist is. Uh, and they use 2 Thess 2, verses 2 and 3 to defend that we will know that. Well, so certainly after the rapture, we'll know, assuming God allows us to see what's unfolding on the earth. Uh, but I don't think we will know before the rapture with certainty. I think that's a misunderstanding of 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. So real quick, the passage says, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, so concerning the rapture, that's what he's talking about there, I don't want you to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord had come. So the problem here was these early believers in Thessalonica had thought, they understood, because Paul made it very clear in 1 Thessalonians, that they were going to be raptured before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath, that seven-year tribulation that he refers to here as the day of the Lord. And the Old Testament prophets called the day of the Lord. It's that seven-year period. So they understood that from his first letter. But now they've been told by people forging letters in Paul's name and other otherwise claiming to have special revelation that that day had already come. They've been told, hey, you're already in the day of the Lord. Well, that obviously raises a question. Did we miss the rapture? <laughs> And uh, Paul says, no, 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 don't be troubled about that. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day cannot have come, it cannot be here, unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. So you can't be in the day of the Lord until after the Antichrist is revealed. And that's exactly the way it's going to play out. The Antichrist is going to sign the covenant, and that begins the day of the Lord. So Paul's exactly right. You can't be in the day of the Lord until... Uh, the man of sin is revealed. So this has nothing to do with the present age. It's not saying that the Antichrist will be revealed before the rapture, but he will be revealed before the day of the Lord. Uh, in fact, that's what commences the day of the Lord, and that's what Paul is saying there. I could go into much greater detail about Second Thess 2, uh, but uh, we'll leave it at that just for the sake of time. All right, well, we got through a lot. Thanks you for indulging me and letting me uh, kind of whittle down my stack. I hope some of that was helpful to you. Uh, but if we can ever be of assistance, certainly feel free to reach out to us at notbyworks.org. As always, we appreciate your prayers and your support. Uh, God is doing some amazing things in our midst. I cannot wait for this new book to come out. You guys are going to just... Uh, 
uh, really uh, be amazed at how the stage is being set. If you thought Spirit of the Antichrist Volumes 1 and 2 were really uh, dealt with a lot of current stuff, uh, this one does too. Uh, pray that we'll be able to finish it strong, and it should, again, be out and ready for the editors uh, in September, and then it's just a matter of... Uh, typesetting and, and getting it out to you. So pray for us in that regard. Uh, great week ahead. Again, uh, tomorrow morning, watch for my posting of part one of my four-part video series with Dr. Tenpenny, uh, and then uh, Prophecy Night tomorrow night, World Events Update Wednesday, Lucas Doremus on the Parables of the Kingdom Thursday, another uh, uh, posting of my uh, interviews with Dr. Tenpenny, part two, the, the, the audio only. Remember, I encourage you to go to drtenpenny.com and watch the videos. It will be, really be encouraging to you, uh, I know. And I think you just have to subscribe to her, um, to her podcast there, uh, and it's worth every penny. Uh, so anyway, thanks again, everybody. God bless you, and uh, have a great uh, rest of the week.